Okay. Now, now I'm, I am going to say this just because I'm in deep grief. Can we take a moment of silence for, for the dead Jayhawks, please? And the dead Wildcats. Okay. Moment of silence. Please. Hey, but we do need to celebrate at Sioux Falls, folks, because our outstanding men won the national championship yesterday. They won the national championship. Coach Billiter is our neighbor. That's my claim to fame. I coached his daughter a long time ago. We're going to complete the series um, with this, with a piece. We're going we're gonna to try and do it. A two-man tango. Now, he can't dance. I can't. <laughs> and I didn't even say white. I didn't even say nothing about white. Somebody else said it over here. So let me read the passage from John uh, chapter 20, verses 10 through 18. The disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not recognize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Don't don't hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to the Father, your Father, to my God, your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, she told them, and he said these things to her. Mary. Now, I... I, I did a couple napkin drawings, as you know. These are my notes. You guys won't be able to read this. It's in code. Okay. And I, I want to take a look at Mary. And the first part of the story that we don't see is that Mary Mary comes to the tomb. Mary Magdalene. She comes to the tomb in grief and finds the tomb empty. She goes back to the back to the back to the crew and tells Peter and John. Peter and John hear the news. The tomb is empty now. Now my understanding is she didn't. She, they had put it together. Jesus is risen from the dead. So when she says the tomb is empty, everybody's thinking there. It, somebody stole the body. 
She said, he ain't in there. They go back. I guess the men had to check it out. That's how we stupid like that. So, Peter and John go in and they check it out. Sure enough, no cloth, all the cloths laying on the slab, no Jesus. They run back to the house. We find Mary, she mistakes. She's befuddled. She doesn't, she doesn't know what happened to the body. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Who is this Mary? Mary Magdalene. They call her Mary Magdalene. Is she the woman caught in adultery? Is she the, the Mary that poured the nard on Jesus' feet? Or is she the Mary, the, the sister of Martha? Or, or in my crazy version, I, I, I thought this was Mary. It says Mary Magdalene, tells you how I read, but I thought it said Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's not even what the text says. Who is this guy? Mary Magdalene. Anybody got heard any rumors about her? See, the, see, the, the rumor I heard, was Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, a bad woman. I tried to find it in the scriptures this week. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find any evidence that Mary was that woman, that Mary Magdalene was that woman. Mary of Mag- Magdala is, is really how you say it. It's where she's from. Now, the city she was from was noted for corruption and prostitution and that kind of thing and I think that's what happened but how many of you when I say Mary Magdalene you think of a broken woman living on the streets giving her body away raise your hand if you're with me am I alone in that please don't tell me I'm alone in that it's not there it's not there that's not who Mary Magdalene was in order to figure out who Mary Magdalene is we have to go all the way back to we have to go all the way back to Luke. And she gets a small mention in Luke eight. Let me read it. In the in the in the, the, the heading says women who follow Jesus. Soon after Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Cruza, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Wait a minute. I thought she was a prostitute. Turns out, Mary was a woman of means. Mary was a woman of standing. She had to be 
in order to have the independence to travel with Christ. She had to be able to take care of her own self and have her own, meet her own needs. She had to have some finances. But when Jesus met her, she was possessed by seven. Seven is a figurative number. It means that her whole mental capacity was taken over and dominated by evil. It means that she probably was nervous, anxious, agitated. And when he saw her, when he first saw her, the, the pictures of, of demon-possessed women in the scriptures come to mind. Disheveled hair, making noises and scratching and doing goofy stuff. She was fully compromised. Have any of you ever been compromised? Emotionally or physically or relationally compromised? Taken over by something? Consumed by something? Ravaged by something? Destroyed by something? And you meet the king and this woman with a totally disraveled and disheveled brain and spirit meets Jesus and he speaks love to her and serenity enters her, her spirit. She understood the change. She meets John and Peter and then this woman, who now we see in the passage, if we come back forward to John, she's sitting at the tomb and she's devastated. She And she looks in the tomb and two angels show up. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, if I look in the tomb and it's empty, I turn away. And I look in the tomb again, and two angels show up. I'm out. I'm out, dude. That would freak me out. I'm out. Now, that's because I imagine them with the big wings and all that kind of stuff. They probably looked like two men standing in the tomb, but I was still being out. And they and then they talked to her. Woman. You know, with the angel voice. Woman. <laughs> no, I'm out. I'm gone. Run it. Why are you crying? Well, now, why was she crying? Grief. Why was she crying? Why was she crying? Was Jesus' death that night, was that those two days, those really four days, were they traumatic? I don't hear nothing. You know how you are. you got to love me here. Were they traumatic? Because I will start picking on people. Uh, let me ask you this. I, I, I'll give you some some things to think about. If if you think that that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, if you were with Jesus, if you think you would suffer from anything I say, when I get done saying, when I say one, I want to hear Amen. If you with, if you think uh, I'm in, okay. Was it traumatic? Okay. Um. 
Was it a violent death that was done to create horror, fear, and helplessness? Do you think you would suffer from intrusive, distressive preoccupation with the terror of that incident? Okay? Do you think you'd be hypervigilant because Jesus went down and you were in potential danger? Okay? Do you think you'd be feeling futile about the future? Okay? Would your focus be more on what you saw and how he was destroyed? Anybody seen the passion? If you seen the passion, raise your hand. Would you be more focused on what you saw even than the, than the body that's still in the tomb? Okay? Would your worldview as a Christian, young Christian, first century Christian, be shattered? Would you have bitterness and anger and feel powerless? Would you feel that there might be an absence of safety for you due, due to what the Romans did to Jesus? Oh, man. You asking me why Mary was crying? Now, here's my next question. The scripture says Jesus shows up. And I read a whole bunch of commentaries on why she didn't recognize him. I'm telling you she was grief-stricken. And I'm telling you that she was grief, her, her grief was traumatized grief. I'm telling you that, I'm telling you that when the gardener showed up, mistakenly she mistakes him for the gardener. I'm telling you that when she looked at him and he said, he said, why are you crying? She looked. Oh, you must be the gardener. Now, why did she do that? Here's what I think. The image that was burning her mind of Christ wasn't cleaned up. His face was shredded. His back was shredded. His chest was shredded. If the passion did any justice, there was parts of what happened to him. I went to the movie with a baseball cap on. And, and when he was getting scourged, I was doing this because I couldn't even watch it. And when he was standing before the Herod shaking after the scourge, that's what she remembers. So when he shows up, cleaned up, why are you crying? She looked, dude, for real, my dude's gone. You, you take him? And she's so grief-stricken, she says to him, I will carry him back to where he's supposed to be if you can tell me where he's at. She's overwhelmed with grief. She's overwhelmed with what just happened three days ago. Not thinking like we tend to think about Easter. Jesus rose from the grave. I'm going to go look for him. No, they weren't thinking. They That had to be yet discovered. Lastly, I want to say this, though. She was honored among women in of the followers that followed Jesus. And check this out. She's the only woman at this point mentioned in most of the Gospels at the death, at the burial and resurrection. She was mentioned in honor below Mary, the mother, and the aunt of Jesus. She was next up. And more important, 
she was given the first message. Take this back to the house. Tell the fellas, I'm going to see the father, your father. I'm going back to my God, your God. But what she was also supposed to say is, I seen him. And they didn't get him. He's back. We can have hope. And she bared and brought hope. She was an honored woman. Grief. Good grief. She couldn't forget what she saw. She couldn't forget what was destroyed. And in that moment, God changed her. Changed her again. She went from hopeless and despairing to a woman of hope. I'm going to call Micah. In the series, we've been looking at people in pain. A woman whose sinfulness was overwhelmed by forgiveness she experienced from Jesus. Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus in the Mount of Olives, Jesus on his way into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and on those three occasions, uh, not just dropping little tears, but weeping and sobbing. Peter denying Jesus the night before he was crucified. And Mary, Mary at the base of the death of her son. Woman's looking for the person that restored her to sanity. The question naturally arises as we see these individuals who wanted to connect with God. How can an all-loving, all-powerful God allow evil and suffering like this? Why, when they followed him, wanted to be authentic followers of his, did he lead them into instances of grief and disillusionment? Why would he do something like that? There are several approaches, several possible ways to answer this question. One is a spiritual warfare approach. Satan is very real and accounts for much of the suffering in the world. That's one way to explain why things happen as they do. God has an adversary, and he has some things to say about what happens in this world. Another approach is a free will approach. When we misuse our God-given freedom, the consequences of our choices are not God's, they're ours. These are approaches that are used. Uh, They leave us, though, with the sense that God is either not as all-loving or as all-powerful as we thought. I don't think they make much sense. Uh, The fact is, as strange as it might sound to us, when we're dealing with God's purposes, and again, as strange as it sounds, good and grief are roads that intersect. And those who would be authentic followers of Christ will find themselves in places where they will experience loss not loss that can be easily swept aside, loss which hurts, loss which confuses, which leaves us in a place that we don't really know how to orient ourselves to the world. It says we know that in all things, 
God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, God works for the good. So in all things, God works for the good. Couple Define a couple words, all. In Greek means all. All, though. All. In all things. Things in the context are not things that make you happy, but things that make you groan. It says we, in this world, we groan because we are in between being as followers and being perfected as such. We have one foot into a relationship and one foot elsewhere, and we are incomplete. We're half-baked. We're halfway done. We're not who we used to be, but not who we want to be. And in this tweener place, we groan. We either want to be extricated from where we want to get out of or we want to inhabit what we want to get into. But what it means, all things, groaning things, are things that remind us that we're not done yet. That we're not done yet. Things that make us groan are times when we react in a way that we wish we wouldn't have reacted. I'm supposed to be a Christian. I shouldn't be snapping like that. I'm supposed to be a Christian. I'm not supposed to be afraid when I deal with this. I'm supposed to be a Christian. I shouldn't be thinking of those kind of things when I go to bed. I shouldn't be thinking of those kind of things when I drive the car. I should be a different person than I am. Okay, I'm different than I used to be, but I'm not where I should be. Uh, when will this be over? When will I be who he wants me to be? When will this transformation be complete? In all things. Even those things that remind you that you're not done yet. In all things. God works for the good of those who love him. I call it according to his purpose. You know what that means? Even in the instances where you fall. I think this, would you agree this is what it means? If all is all and things are things. Even those remembrances, reminders that you are not who you were, but not who you will be. In those remembrances, God works for the good of those who love him. We're called according to his purpose. Um, God promises that he will never stop doing good to us. It says in your worship folder, there is a verse. Look at it. You read it first, and you see if you can see what I see. Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32 38. In the Jeremiah 31, it talks about the new covenant, and I will be their God, they will be my people. And in Jeremiah 32, it applies, what does that mean? That God is my God and I'm his people. And Jeremiah explains, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. This is what God says through Jeremiah, and I will never stop doing good to them. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant. It's what Jesus brings about when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's why he died. So he could inaugurate a new covenant. What does that mean? What it means, according to Jeremiah, I will never stop doing good to them. You know what it means? That's what it means. If he will never stop doing good to you, and you're connected to God, and God is good and never will stop doing good, That's true. 
that God will never stop doing good to you. And you're connected to God, and God's connected to good. You are connected to who? Are you connected to good? Does everything in your life look good? Hey, Mike, I'm not who I would like to be. I'm not who I was. But just because you are not who you will be, that doesn't mean you're disconnected and God will stop doing good to you if you do that thing again. You know the thing I'm talking about, don't you? You know the thing. If you do that thing again, is God going to stop doing good to you? My question. If you lose your temper again, if you do that thing again, is God going to stop doing good to you? What does the new covenant say? I will, what? I will never stop doing good to them. What would happen if you believed that? What you think about it? Never stop doing good to me. Really? Never? As in never? If you believe that, what would happen? You know what some people are afraid of? If I believed that, then I would go out and do all kinds of twisted, lousy things. Really? 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 If I tell you I'm never going to stop doing good to you, and we have a relationship, you're going to steal my car? You're going to try to deceive me and defraud me? Really? If you if you really have this relationship and you believe that about me, you know what you would do? You would connect with me. That's what God says. I will never stop doing good. You are connected to God. You're connected to good. Uh, you know what the problem is, though? We really do have to define good, though, don't we? Everything in your life good? Everything, everything good? Everything good? Uh, no. No. Deceived. Just... Now, and again, this, uh, yeah, of course there's some good things. But you're who you want to be. Everything's good inside. Your thoughts are good. Everything good in your home. Everything good in your marriage. Everything good at work. What's good mean? A couple of things. Good means to share in his holiness. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That's what it says in Hebrews 8.10. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. What does it mean to be holy? You know what holy means? It's really two things. It, holiness is about connection and correction. And both images, both senses, apply to holiness. There's connection and correction. And interestingly, originally, it was one, but then it was eclipsed by the other. Initially, in Judaism, holiness meant being connected. It was an encounter with God. Now, if this is what God is, and I'm going to connect with God, moving toward the connection is originally what holiness was about. Connection, an encounter with God. Now, now, when I do that and I go towards God, I am going to walk away from something over here. But what I'm really doing, initially, originally, I am moving toward God. You know what happened with holiness? It got turned around. So, the connection was eclipsed by the correction. And so it became not an encounter with God, but what I don't do anymore. 
the things that I avoid, the things that I no longer do. Are you holy? Yeah, I am, Mike. I never do those things anymore. And it got flipped around. And so now, in our time, correction has eclipsed connection. And both of them are relevant. But originally, the word connection eclipsed correction. You know that this is the way it works? It's connection, then correction. You aware of that? It's connection, then correction. Beth, can I steal you? Stand up. Okay. <laughs> Beth is a really good person, studies hard, but Beth, and I'm going to be God, and she'll be Beth. <laughs> As I've said before, I will be Godette. Here, little God. Okay. Thank you. Okay. And so, Beth, you're a good person, but mm, yeah, there's some issues there. I'll tell you what, Beth. You take care of those issues, correct them, and then we'll be connected. Okay? You take care of those issues, and then we'll be able to be connected. That's what holiness has come to resemble. That's not initially. That's not originally it. It's not correction than connection. It's this. Yeah, Beth, as it, with everybody, you have some issues. I'll tell you what, let's do. Let's connect. And in the context of this connection, let's deal with some of those things in there. Because you're going to deal with them with me as we walk through life together and as you learn to trust me. So, let's connect and then we'll deal with those things. And thanks, Beth. And that's, that's holiness. Holiness is connection, then correction. Do you have issues that need to be changed? Amen. Do you have issues that need to be changed? You know, the deal is, it's connection first, then correction. Some of you have it backwards. And you're waiting to try to change the things in your life in order for God to connect with you. And you've gotten things backwards. Holiness is connection first. Then correction happens within the context of the connection. That's the way it works. Connection, then correction. Um, difference between, it says punishment and discipline. Discipline is a connection word, literally. When we think of discipline, we might not think of connection. But literally what it is, it's, well, you know what connection is? You know what discipline is? When I was next to Beth, to be with her. That's what discipline literally means. A Beth isn't a child, but literally discipline means be with a child. That's what discipline means, to be with a child. It's a connection image. There's a difference between discipline and punishment. The focus of discipline is when it's properly administrated. administered. The focus of discipline is on the future. When you discipline correctly, you're thinking that this experience will allow my child to be this in the future. The focus of discipline is on the future. How about the focus of punishment? How about the focus of punishment? It's on the past, the thing you did wrong. See, that's punishment, not discipline. God disciplines us for our good. The focus is on the future. How about the motive? The motive for discipline is love. I want my child to be in a place where they'll be, be everything to be what who God wants them to be. And the motive of punishment is wrath, justice, anger. 
You understand why discipline and punishment are different? Are different issues. Discipline is a connection image. Punishment is a correction issue. Now, there is some change that happens, but connection comes first. That's what it says. Um, God disciplines us for our good so that we can share in his holiness. That's what good means. So, God is going to put you in situations where you are going to need to connect with him. God is going to put you in situations where you're going to need to connect with him. And what that means, you're going to be at the end of your rope. We don't trust God until we have to. If long as we can go on the basis of what we can muster, what we can pull off, we really don't need God. But when we get to that place that we have no hope but Him, that's when we really need to connect with Him. Some of you know about that place, don't you? Yeah, you know about that place. But you don't know? God meets you at that place. Disciplines us for our good that you may share in His holiness. And good means also saving of many lives. Look at the last verse. It says, Joseph said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph looked behind him and saw family rejection. Boy, talk about troubled relationships. I mean, his brothers, they, they conspired to throw him in a pit and kill him. And you thought your brother or sister was, was a butthead. Really? They threw him in a pit. And the older one persuaded them, don't throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery. So he looked in the rearview mirror, and that's what he saw. He saw rejection, unjust treatment, betrayal. But some of you see that in your rearview mirror. Unjust treatment. He shouldn't have done that. No way she should have done that to you. Unjust treatment. You didn't do it. You just didn't do it. And they talk about you still as if you did. Betrayal. He looked around him though. That's what he saw behind him. And he looked around him. You know what he saw? He saw his family in a place where they had food. He saw the Egyptians around, and they had food as well. And you know what he could see? That God's good trumped his brother's bad. Somebody says, to forgive is to forget. Did Joseph forget what his brothers did to him? Did he? Did did he? I can't remember. You threw me into a what? I think he probably remembered that. Would you agree with me? Forgiveness and forgetting don't go hand in hand. In fact, they say that wouldn't be a real good sign if he forgot it, would it? It would not be from a mental health perspective. Not at all. Of course you're going to remember. But what Joseph understood as he looked in his rearview mirror and looked around him, you know what? Your good trumped their bad. Easter? What Easter's about? And a message for Easter to, the, to us who are 
We don't always have the life we want to have. This is what Easter means. Worship team, come on up. God's good trumps everyone's bad. Because what did he say? He will never stop doing good to you. And what that means, his good trumps everyone's bad. Those who love you were called according to your purpose. The new covenant means you'll never stop doing good to us. That means we're connected to you and we're connected to good then because it's you and us and God good. Um, it's hard for us to believe that. Naturally, you understand that. Uh, but you would have us contemplate that. Make room for it in our mind. Make room for your commitments. But to the degree we believe them, they change us. Your promises change us. You access your power through your promises. So I guess I ask that you would help us to see you more clearly, your promises more clearly, to make room for them in the midst of seeing things about life. We don't want to be an ostrich with our head in the sand, but we want to be able to see you as well. So I guess that's my prayer. Would you help us to hang on to reality and hang on to your hand at the same time? In Jesus' name, amen.